Hi everyone, so you're joining us on the Unrelenting Drive podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Quinn from Corporate Smarts and he is going to tell us a story about how how he built up his career in business, the lessons he's learned and um, the advice he'd give to other people. So actually, you know, a really good um, starting point, Steve, is um, how did we meet? Yeah, how did we meet? Um, I remember seeing you on LinkedIn. We reached out, I think we connected, and then you got busy with Apex, yes. and getting, th getting things set up. But then I saw you at the gym. I saw you at the gym with Tommy Gunn, as I call him, your PT. Oh, yeah. And um, probably after about a month, six weeks, I recognized that you, you were still showing up, as yes. you're doing now, you're still showing up. And, and to me, that deserves further encouragement, a bit of recognition. So I think we got talking that way through the gym, through through training, through working out and stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we we ended up getting that coffee in the uh, ca uh, cafe bit. It's uh, yeah, you know what? That, I'm so glad you did reach out actually, because. Um, but I, I, when I see other people like on social media, I, they're, they're really trying to get that message out. There. And sometimes, you know, they, they might have been doing it such a long time, not achieved anything from it, and then they just need that little bit of encouragement. And um, and then it just gives them the motivation to you know keep going for another three months, keep going for another six months, and then uh, you know you probably know the challenge with social media is people give up too soon. And yeah, so actually, it's, yeah, exactly, yeah, it's a much much longer game than people um, really recognise, isn't yeah, it? And and I think as well, you know, you it's so important to have the right kind of influences around you as yes. well, right? Like. Um, yeah, the corporate smarts has only been going for about a year and a half. And last August was a was a, a very challenging month. And um I was approached about a couple of roles actually back in banking. Come back around to it. But this goes back to the influence part. I've got a friend who's an entrepreneur, he runs a few different businesses, and normally he calls me with with his woes, but this this the boot was on the other foot, and I called him and said, Look, this is a situation, and he gave me what I call the loving boot which was pull your socks up, um, get back on the wagon, yeah. right? just remember your purpose, why you did this in the first place, yeah. and just keep going. Because exactly as you said with social media, um, although I'm far from being a social media guru or having any skill or experience with it, you know, you've just, persistence, consistency and persistence, I think, wins. And if it doesn't, you learn from it, right? You learn from the experience of putting yourself out there and continuing to show up. I think that's probably one of my one of my favorite lines is just keep showing up. Because once you show up, then the work begins, right? Showing up is the hard part. Yeah, so uh, you know what? When we caught up before, you did kind of give me your history in, in banking and, and business in general. But like for the purpose of the podcast, if you... Because yeah, it kind of... What you're saying about showing up, I, I guess your entire career has, has been about showing up, hasn't it? You, you you started it at the bottom and then you just were consistent enough that you worked your way up. So it'd be really good for the audience to, to understand how you started off um, it and um, and where, how you got to where you are now. So it probably is relevant just for context um, to share a little bit around uni because I went to uni in 1999. Um, you probably remember millennium and, yes. and 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 how everyone was kind of freaking out at the prospect that right. yeah er, and everything would shut down um clearly that didn't happen but i, I studied business computing uh, at the university of westminster and when i came out of that i had no idea what i wanted to do right you know i 
had com a few conversations with different people, but I knew what some of my strengths were. Sales was one of them. Interpersonal skills was 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 something that I just picked up along the way. I think naturally some emotional intelligence was there. I just wanted to earn some money, right? I, had, I didn't have any choice. My parents had uh, retired to Ireland. My brother had moved to Singapore. And I was like, okay, well, let's start this life and see what happens. And so um, the very first job that I got was in B2B telesales uh, in Farringdon. It was a it was a sales floor with um, seven tables of seven of, of groups of seven. And it was predominantly men. And it was really kind of like uber masculine. Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, but kind of like that. Yeah, it was two, two, 2002, um, summertime, and I just needed to make a living. So within within a couple of weeks, I, I, I got really, really lucky. I just caught a decision maker. I was selling um, advertising space in a British medical journal. And... I used to make calls early and late, so I'd stay there all day, but I'd come in a bit earlier, go home a bit later. Yeah. And one evening, I just happened to catch a chief oncologist, and um, he was just pouring his heart out to me. He had a terrible day, and then he said, look, here's my, here's my cell phone number, here's my mobile number, give me a call first thing tomorrow morning, and you know, let's see what you've got to offer. And uh, he agreed, uh, agreed to a 12-month 12, a 12 um, deal, which just put me from like complete novice and beginner to number two in the in, in the pecking order. Yeah. And um, so what I did was I waited until that paycheck came through and I resigned because at that point I'd quintupled my base salary because it was such a good deal. Um, and he was a really great guy. But then I, I, I left that and I thought, right, what do I really want to do? And I wanted to learn about money. So, you know, I didn't have the skills or the interest, I think, really, to, to get into something like accounting. But banking seemed like quite a natural, for easy kind of first step in for me. And what happened was I remember going to an, a DECO recruitment agency in uh, Hammersmith in London. And they said, you know what, there's, there's a NatWest bank across the road. Yeah. Um, and they're really looking for someone as a customer advisor, someone does open bank accounts, sell loans, mortgages, things like that. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I just wanted it, needed a job at this point. Um, so they sent me across the road. They, they made the call, sent me across the road. An hour later, uh, whoever was recruiting me just said, look, we love you. And let's just call the agency because we want to offer you the job right there and then. So I started like the next week. And within, I had the most amazing boss. His name is Jim Gorry. Jim, if you're listening, thank you. Um, six, six. I, I think about six weeks in, I, re I had no experience in banking whatsoever. And on a Friday, he came to me and he said, listen, I want you to manage the branch tomorrow for me. Um, and Hammersmith NatWest was huge. It was huge. They used to have like eight ATMs and all of this sort of stuff. It was, it was early, early noughties. And anyway, fast forward. And after six months, I got... Um, promoted uh, to, to run the Notting Hill Gate branch, which again was just a bit of a dream that slowly turned into a bit of a nightmare. Really difficult job, right, being a branch manager, especially if you're understaffed, especially if you're in Zone 1 in London, and especially if you've got massively demanding clients. So we used to have celebs coming in asking for, you know, like £10,000 in cash that only the branch manager could do behind locked doors and all this sort of thing. And anyway... Um, what became apparent to me was I was spending 60% of my salary on uh, rent 
I was living in West Harrow at the time in, in Northwest London and I wanted to get on the property ladder. So, um, I literally opened up a, an old fashioned map because this was pre Google maps and I didn't have the internet at home, uh, and kind of went like this and landed on Northampton. Um, I then called a, a really good buddy of mine and said, you, doesn't your sister go to uni in Northampton? What's it, what's it like? And he said, I think you'll really like it. So I came up, I looked at a couple of jobs and then I realized, well, I still work for that last one. I just called the area manager. So I cold called the area manager. He thought it was a wind up. Um, and he said to me, listen, why don't you come up? I've got four branches to show you. Uh, so I did, um, we, we went around those branches. I chose Kingsthorpe. Remember Nat West in Kingsthorpe, yeah. as it used to be now, I think it's a nail salon and an air salon or something like that. Um, and I moved up a month later and the whole purpose, because you know, everything's about purpose and your why and your reasoning. The whole purpose was to get onto the property ladder. So I moved up, uh, I thought I was 23 at the time. I ran this branch. I had no, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. So all I would do is work. So I'd stay back late. Yeah. Um, I remember sorting out a filing and then realizing there's a whole catalog of clients here and customers. So I'd call them up and say, look, do you want to come in and meet the, the new bank manager um, and find out if they wanted to borrow more money, if they had savings elsewhere, whatever the opportunity was. But more importantly, let's just connect. So, so was it your job to do that as a bank manager? It wasn't my primary role. But in the same breath, I joined a branch that was second from bottom. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm competitive by nature, probably like you, like most people are. And to me, there seemed no better way to spend my, you know, an hour or two in the evening than ringing around to clients. Yeah. So I filled up the diary. Um, and, you know, within a, a few months, I think we were number two with the region, behind the drapery. Wow. The dra no, no one ever topped the drapery or yeah. Western fable. It was, it was something like that. So um, that's 2004, three months in, um, found a property, bought a house, got on the property ladder. And I think I stayed in that branch for about nine months a year, something like that. And I asked the area director, how can I get into commercial banking? I'd love to find out more about business. Yeah. So the, the gentleman at the time who ran the commercial banking arm in this region, sat down with me and I kid you not, this was his response to me showing my eagerness, right? Evidencing my performance. He said, you're too young and you want too much money. And I said, really, that's, that's going to be your, your, your gambit. I was like, yeah. So I showed him the door. Um, and about three months later, I resigned and went to HSBC who didn't say any of that to me. In fact, they said, we, we like your youth. We like your energy and we can pay you what you want but we want you in the city. So um, I commuted for about a year, year and a half, and I became a relationship manager for SMEs, right? Small, medium enterprises, startups. Fascinating. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember going into the job interview and the good cop, bad cop, and the bad cop had said nothing for about an hour and a half. And what he said to me was, um, uh, Steve, you clearly have got zero experience in business banking. How do you think you, you're going to survive in this role? And I just remember kind of sitting there, bricking myself, thinking, well, I can learn all of that, can't I? It's products, isn't it? And process. Something along those lines. And um, so I, I, I got the role. I met some incredible people. Uh, I spent two years as a commercial relationship manager. It really wasn't the best fit for me. I was great with people. 
but that you you have to spin and you still have to spin so many plates in banking especially in the commercial arm to cross sell to develop relationships to lend to get you know bring, bring live you have a team under you at that point no not about i was 24 right so i was i was the youngest commercial manager i think in in the city and 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 within 18 months i was already eager to move on what was it like going from managing a team to not having to manage a team did, did you feel it did you find it liberating or did you feel there was something missing um I, I think I was so preoccupied by learning the ropes and, and, and understanding what business was all about. Like at uni, I'd, I'd done a bit around business and enterprise and P&Ls of financial accounting. But when you're in the heart of city and, you know, first off, it's just a, it's a huge branch. There's probably 80 people working in there, including the commercial team. You've got to get to know everyone. Second to that, you've got to get to know all your clients. Yeah. Thirdly, you got to get to know products, systems, services, and all of that kind of good stuff. So I can't recall feeling, I, I probably felt a little bit less burdened. Okay. Because one of, one of the challenges that I, I would have in a branch was how do you influence others to help you, right? And being so young with relatively little experience, some people loved it. They thought, great, you know, he's wet behind the ears. He's got the energy. Let's, let's jump on, on the coattails. Others saw the complete opposite, which was, well, he obviously hasn't been bitten by the corporate bug yet, um, or, or he, he hasn't got the savvy yet. Um, but going into it, yeah, I mean, that was the busiest job I've ever had without any shadow of a doubt. A couple of hundred clients, which if you think about it, right, when you're you were supposed to meet all of them, but a big part of the job was winning new business. Yeah. Right. So persuading other businesses to move their banking from another bank to HSBC at the time. So I'd moved from NatWest to HSBC. And the real chat, I, I, I worked with people. And the real challenge was making sure that I was showing up every day in the best way that I could. And after about a year, that started lapsing. I, I knew it within myself that I wasn't showing up in the best way possible. Yeah. And but what was the reason? I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I was dis I was disenchanted. Yeah. I, I, at that point, I was already thinking, because I was meeting people who were setting up new businesses. Yeah. And at that point, I was already thinking, I want to do this. Yes. Well, see, I, I want to take ownership of my own destiny. Yeah. And, but I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the know-how. I didn't have the ideas. And, um, you know, no excuses. I just wasn't ready within myself to take that risk. I'd, you know, relatively risk averse. What, say, like, back then, I guess you were an outsider looking into the business world, but what would you say these SMEs, the, the owners, had in common? Courage. Uh, if I was to say in two words, and, and, and this is across all genders, but brass balls, thick neck, right? These people had incredible courage to get on with it. Right, and the, the way that I see it now, and I understand it now, is it's not ignorance, but it's um, you know, it, it's the ability to just jump in with both feet without really seeing what's at the bottom. Yeah. Right. So I heard a great story recently, which was uh, a boy and a horse stepping into a cave, and the boy says to the horse, "I'm scared. I can't see the end of the cave." And the horse says, "But can you see your next step?" The boy says, yes. And he says, well, just take your next step. And what 
I think all of those, all of the entrepreneurs that I know have is the ability to not focus on the light at the end of the tunnel, even if you can't see it, it's looking at the next step. It's like driving from, I don't know, um, Land's End to Penzance and realizing that I'm going to do all of this drive at night. I can't see the end destination. I can only see 20, 30, 40 yards in front of me, right? With the headlights. It's the same sort of premise, which which I, th I completely lacked. I didn't have any of that courage at this point. I was just like, I would love to do this, but I really don't know how. What you're mentioning is, because I've given this a lot of thought, because I, I guess as a bank manager with some of these SMEs, you might you might have been working with more successful ones, maybe not the, maybe not the less successful ones, because there's a lot of businesses out there where they just don't want to borrow money. And, um, and I, I, I kind of, I was trying to get to the mindset of, what makes a business want to borrow money? Well, we've borrowed money in the past as well, but what makes a business want to borrow money to expand? And Alex Holt-Mosey, Holt in his um, interview on Diary of the CEO, he, there, was an, there was an amazing section in there where he was actually just talking about, he, he believes in inputs. So what, what he talks about is when, he, when there's a desired um, result he wants to achieve, he just thinks about the things he has to do um, and, and the quantity of them. So he's like, Okay, I, I just had to make a thousand phone calls, and and so he, and he he's got this input theory. And I did a video yesterday, and the video was essentially about it was kind of looking at what makes people borrow money, and and you've got two groups of business owners. That's something I've observed talking to hundreds of business owners, and one group looks at everything as a worst case scenario, and the other one looks at everything in the the most likely scenario. And actually, you get a third group that looks at everything in the most optimistic scenario. And, and but it's the the most the group in the middle that's the most successful because that, to to I guess to be successful in business, you've got to invest in in the growth of your business. And if you look at everything as the worst case scenario, you can't see a return because it's like okay, if I hire this member of staff to grow my business and it doesn't work out, fine, I've lost six months of their salary. If I um, pay this agency to do something and it doesn't work out. I've, I've lost a setup fees and three months worth of their fees. You, you, and suddenly you're always looking at everything as a cost. Uh, whereas if you look at something as a most likely scenario, you're thinking, okay, well, most likely scenario, like um, I'd, I'd have to be really bad to spend 150 grand on marketing and not get anything back. So actually the, the cost isn't 150 grand. It's, it's the difference between that 150 minus what, what I got back. Or, and and it's it's hard to configure your mind even nine years in now i still struggle with that and um but i i i'm very aware of it and i, I force myself into that other way of thinking you know the, the most likely scenario i think as well cost is one way of looking at it yeah. um an extremely savvy probably the best relationship banking director commercial banking director i ever worked with he said to me, never speak to a client about the cost. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a price. Yes. It's a price. Um, even more challenging is to talk about it as an investment. Okay? Because it is. You know, because um, yeah, banking, you're heavily regulated, aren't you? So you're not allowed, you're not allowed to use the word investment, are you? I mean, if you're talking about something external, yes. Yeah. Um, and, but I think the key is, is the filter, is the mindset, right? It's the risk appetite. And most of those people, I don't know what their backgrounds were, I can't remember, right? It's nearly 20 years ago. But 
from the entrepreneurs that I know, um, it's an unrelenting drive um, to fulfill their potential. There's a ridiculous faith that some, not just entrepreneurs, but successful people that I've met have in themselves. Yeah. And you know, when you, you talk about Diary CEO in that podcast, I was listening to um, Lewis Hamilton talking to Jay Shetty and he was asked and, you know, you go back through the ages and I'm a big basketball fan, two of my favorite greatest of all times of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant and Lewis Hamilton as a goat, without a doubt. And when they are asked, what's the biggest challenge that you faced in your career? Um, the answer is having faith in myself, right? Because if you're a business owner and you don't have that faith in yourself to be able to go on and do the thing that you want to do, who else is going to have faith in you, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't believe in what it is that you want to go out there and achieve, who else is going to believe in you? So I think that's a, that, that's probably a key part of it, right? And that yeah. is very, you know, how do you maintain that? So you think about it with someone like Lewis Hamilton, who's won over 100 races, most successful racer of all time by the numbers. So when he now loses a race, or and, and perhaps a team isn't, De delivering the way that he wants them to, what helps him pick himself back up and, and get back into that car and go race again. And it's the same with, you know, like any business owner, I guess, what's, where's the faith, right? Um, where's the belief? What's the purpose? Why are you getting out of bed every day to do what you do? Is it just to earn a hundred grand a year? Cause if you wanted to do that, you can go do that in, in a job somewhere, right? A very well paid job. Um, or is there a deeper meaning behind what it is that you're doing? What was the, um, you, you told me a really good saying, uh, what was it? The, uh, the pain pushes until the vision pulls. Exactly. Yeah. Pain pushes till the vision pulls. And, and for me that there was, you know, that that's from a, a, a fabulous guy called Dr. Michael Beckwith. Yeah. And for me that, you know, from about 2004, 2005, it was generally a pain pushing, not always. Right, I found inspiration in working with some amazing people. What was the pain? Um, wanting to do something else, realizing that I was part of. I, I was a small cog, right, in in a very big system, um, and and you know you change right over time. So when I first joined HSBC, I remember walking into Canary Wharf, and you know bear in mind I'd just been managing. A small branch in Northampton. I go along to some training and, you know, like the, these, these banks really look after their people. They really give people up to represent them the best way possible. And I remember going into Canary Wharf HCS thinking, wow, this is amazing. Right. I think eight or nine years later, I'm in the same organization. I spent two years as a commercial manager. I then got, um, approach to take a, a specialist role in payment solutions, payment sales, uh, which essentially meant I had my own P&L, I had my own balance sheet to a degree I was responsible for, and I managed my own diary. And back in 2006, working from home was not a thing, right? And we were told, look, you don't have an office. You cover however many offices that you cover around London, but otherwise you work from home. It's like, really? And so that was kind of revolutionary, right? And someone had faith in me to be able to deliver on this role. And um, 
anyway, one of the things that I found in doing that job, so I, I wasn't so I wasn't as close to businesses as I had been previously. I was going into businesses and essentially just providing them with a needs-based solution, right? Um, and straight away, I, I was into this very small sales team made up of four people, including our boss. And the other two guys were far more experienced than me. And they both had these fantastic strengths. So, you know, I, I, I used to read a, a lot and watch a lot of Bruce Lee. And he talks about, you know, learning from people, taking what is valuable and discarding the rest. And so I spent a month with these chaps. I learned so much about empathy in sales. I learned so much about diary management, right? All sorts of different things, structures and disciplines that I soon realized, you know, you can map into your own life as well. So, um, and, and then I, you know, I love that job. The first couple of years I did that, that role was fantastic, but then 2008 hit, right. And the whole banking industry completely changed in terms of regulatory environment, but to give you an idea, you know, working in the city of London, a financial hub of the world, you're relatively unscathed, right? You saw what was going on on the news. You, you read it in the papers, but you'd go out and you'd see businesses and they'd be doing all right. Some of them be thriving. Some of them are opening offices all over the world, need your help to, you know, set up banking facilities in those, in those locations and stuff. So I, you know, I, I soon realized that there were, you know, there's, there's one narrative that we're given and then there's a whole other narrative that's not even really being aired, which meant to me that how many other stories are out there? How many other truths are out there as well? Um, but I love that role. Uh, and, and but it changed right as everything does uh, we had a great time working together I learned loads earned loads it was fantastic and um, and then my my now wife and I uh, my, my wife got pregnant and we couldn't live in London anymore right so I said look I've got a house up in Northampton I think this is really our only option um, so we moved up here and I commuted for I don't know, a couple of years and then I was pulled out of the frontline sales uh, team to become a coach for the European sales team, um, which was which was you know a fantastic opportunity. I was I, I was called about it um, not long after my father had died, and I was asked, "Look, do you want to take this role? You've got to make a decision by the morning because we've actually got someone else for it, but we're willing to swap him out for you if you want to take it." And I said. I'll take it. No questions asked, right? Um, two weeks off-site with six other incredible salespeople from around the world, um, off-site with PwC, just learning about getting onto the client agenda and so on and so on and so on. And that opened me up to the world of coaching. And, you know, I got kind of bitten by the bug, realized that there was there was an alternative perhaps for me. But this wasn't, this was still like 2009, 2010. So, yeah. you know, at that stage, it was... Spend as much time with family as possible. How old were your kids at that point? Well, my daughter was just born. She was born in 2000. No, I can probably do the maths based on it. Yeah, <laughs> she, she was born at the end of 09. And I, I immediately knew that I wanted to spend as much time with her as possible. So, you know, continuing to climb the corporate ladder didn't make much sense to me at that moment because what, what I valued more was the time that I invested with her yeah. and watching her grow. So... Um, you know, I always had this thing from, I don't know, 15 or 16, which was imagine you're 75 yeah. 
what you know when, when it comes to a decision that you need to make what kind of decision is 75 year old steve quinn gonna regret yeah. not making and 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 it's a no-brainer for me it was spending time with you know a, a miracle that happened to be part me and part my beautiful wife so um all, all additional energy went in into her and i can kind of relate to that at the moment because my, my kids are one and four and but you know what? I, I do something you might find quite funny, actually. Like every time I'm getting impatient in business, I'm going to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I just get a cap placer out. I put the number 65 in and then I deduct my age from it. And it tells me how many years I've got left to work. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, fine. Still like 25 years or whatever. And, um, and then I'm like, okay, do I, do I really need to push that thing right now? Can I, can I spend a bit more time with the family and then have 23 years to continue building my career and business? And, um, I, and actually that just sandal, I, I don't know what you would call that type of exercise, but actually I, I just do that and it, it re-centers my focus. Right. To check in with, yeah. with who you are, what you want. I think, you know, for me, um, th there's a phrase that I coined or an acronym called ROTI, R-O-T-I, return on time invested. All right. And it's also delicious food, isn't it? Yeah. Roti is delicious. Roti is delicious. I think I mentioned this before, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I love, love a bit of roti. But for, for me, it, it's a no brainer. You, you've only got one currency in life and that's time. Yeah. Um, I, I think most people's mindset is not connected to time. No. It's because, because time just seems like this abstract, um, you know, <clears throat> ethereal, misunderstood entity but for me it's very simple you've only got however many years you've only got however many hours and so on and so on so if i'm going to spend an hour doing something if i'm going to invest an hour doing something which is only four percent of your day but if you're going to invest an hour in doing something you want it to be impactful and you, you, again it goes back to purpose what's the purpose what are the reasons that you're doing this for um you know simon Sinek's what's your why it's very similar to that. Why is very emotional. Purpose and reasoning is much more logical and structured, right? Um, and and you, you get better data from reasoning and purpose. Whereas why you get a lot more, well, because, just because. Simon Sinek, your favorite author. Um, I wouldn't say, I'd say it's Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. Yeah, four hour work week. And yeah. yeah. Completely changed my life. It was a tribe, tribe of mentors. Tribe of mentors. Yeah, I've downloaded that book on my um, phone, in fact, but I haven't actually started listening to it. It's, it's, it's one to have on the bookshelf because they're reference books, really. Yeah. Um, and um, probably in 2013. So I, so what happened with um, with my role was I, I ended up actually looking outside of the UK and I got offered a, a head of payments and cash management liquidity role in Bahrain in 2000 and I want to say 2011. Yeah, beginning in 2011. And I kid you not, when I sat down to sign the um, resignation papers with my boss at the time, HSBC UK, on the TV, there was um, news about an uprising in Bahrain. And, you know, uh, whatever had was going on over there. So, you know, great guy. He took the papers from me and he said, I'll keep these for now. Yeah. He said, you might want to have a, a chat to your young family about this um and i remember leaving that meeting and, and trying to get hold of all of the people in bahrain who had told me you've got 48 hours to make a decision they forced my hand 
great package and everything, right? We negotiated a great position, but they tried to rush me into it. And then I found out why. And then I couldn't get hold of anyone for three weeks. And at that point, I just sent an email that, that evening saying, I'm out, right? You know, this is not for me. And I, I'm really pleased. And I, I'll never forget my wife saying, because at this point, you know, we were in debt. I was in debt up to my eyeballs, just over geared. Um, young family uh, and, and just overspent, right? Um, I'd say a pr Prosecco lifestyle of beer money. I wasn't a champagne lifestyle, but it was it was kind of like that 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 way um, slanted. So uh, my wife said to me, "Can't you get that money here? Can't you earn that sort of money here?" And I was like, oh, "I don't know. We'll see." And I just remember like my heart sank because it's tax free over there and everything else. Um, but the the I think about a year later, I was I was approached by a few different banks, and one of them was Lloyd's, and uh, the hiring manager. Uh, at the time, we sat down and he asked me a question that hardly anyone had asked me in the corporate world, which is, what do you want? And what do you want? And when he said, what do I want? I said, what, what do you mean, what do I want? I said, what do you want financially, but what do you want out of life? So, you know, we broke it down and I told him, you know, honestly, I said, look, I'd love to run my own business at some point. But I just don't know where and what it will be or anything else. I'd, I'd had loads of ideas, but analysis paralysis, I'd put the brakes on and straight up fear had put the brakes on. It's really, it's really hard to start your own business when you've got a family because I, I was 29 when I started my own business, but I sometimes wonder if I could do it all over again now with two kids uh, because it's, it's just, could I, how, how would I justify giving up a job to, to then earn nothing for like three years or two, two years until you, until you get somewhere back? I think, I think if, if, if you've got a very understanding partner, who, 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 you know, my, and my wife, before we got married, long before we got married, she was, you know, she, she's amazing at what she does. She's a massage therapist, reflexologist, hypnobirthing consultant. And she had said to me, oh, these guys, she, she'd met some people running a business. She said, these guys haven't got any of your intelligence. You could do this. Why don't you run your own business? <laughs> and I was like, you know, when you're so busy in, in, in your job yeah. and you're busy doing other things so i was enjoying life right i was going out and drinking and partying and enjoying myself and having a good time uh you know i was in my 20s and i wasn't really focused on that i was trying to live a full life uh, but in the same at the same time overspending not really having a purpose not really having a vision for myself and then once once uh my wife got pregnant that, that kind of changed because i was like damn I better start taking life a bit more seriously because genuinely, Nishi, in my 20s, my primary focus was, and my primary value was, how do you be happy? How are you happy in life, right? Like most people that I'd come across live life and they're not particularly happy. Um, and what I realized was, it, it, you know, for me, and everyone's different, but I put joy first as my value in my 20s. And that meant having a good time. Uh, but it also meant suffering because you, inevitably you suffer. You don't get enough sleep. You're hungover, right? You end up with no money and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so I learned that quite early on that there was there was a mismatch. It was an imbalance between the two. But as soon as you know, baby was was on her way, the purpose changed, uh, or, or a purpose was created, and that immediately gave me a beacon to look towards. So um, that meant. You know, as as the primary earner, earning more money, um, that meant having a plan, and that plan was really around 
securing our future as quickly as possible. Um, so I moved banks, I went to Lloyd's, uh, and I, I, I'd worked primarily in the city my whole life, apart from nine months spell in Northampton. And, um, they just said to me, look, where do you, where do you want to work? I said, I'd, I'd like to work as close to home as possible, right? Young family. And they said, sure. Um, but we're going to need you to cover half the country. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you won, you won one and a half was, I mean, it was a blur. It was, you know, it was 40,000 miles, um, in the car. It was meeting people. It was, you know, and then you realize how different two corporates doing exactly the same thing can be. At, in some ways, it was like stepping back in time, moving from HSBC to Lloyd's. But then in other ways, there was this fantastic culture around people at Lloyd's and there was loyalty and there was, um, you know, in spells, there was this real um, sense of being valued there, being part of something bigger. Whereas the culture that I had experienced only in the last couple of years in the city was much more cutthroat. Yeah. Much more target driven. Yeah, very much so. And and also, you know, again, systems and processes play a massive part in this. When you are super efficient on one hand, there's no hiding, right? You you have to, you know, do your 15 client meetings a week or whatever it was. Whereas here, you know, before I knew it, I signed a desk. I was working on maybe eight different projects. I was, you know, uh, but I was really eager to make moves in the right direction so i would call my boss and say look is there anything you need me to do and it's like yeah can you just do all of these investment committee calls and next thing i know i'd you know i'd, I'd be running out of a client meeting to hop in my car in a car park somewhere and doing this you know investment committee call and then i'd be on another call and you know it's that kind of um get, getting into that onto that hamster wheel and it was really fast at lloyd's and it was intense and there was a lot of work to be done um and then, of course, like everything, the, you know, chess pieces move. And uh, a couple of guys came into the, the bank who were amazing, right? They, they helped change my life, my family's life. Um, you know, I was banging on for a promotion for a long time. Uh, well, I say a long time, probably a year and a half, two years, but I'm sure it was a pain for my boss at the time. Um, and new management came in, and as a, re I suppose, a retention tool, it was... As soon as I'd met my new boss's boss, he said, look, I'm promoting you. And what he doesn't know is how much, he doesn't know because we haven't had a chance to sit down and have a conversation like this since, is how much that changed the trajectory of, of our lives. Um, and I say, as mine, my wife, my daughter, and ultimately helped us, helped me gear us into a position where I could step away from, from a, a job. Um, and it was just complete trust, right? And and where did, but where does that trust come from? We didn't really know each other. And was it your reputation? Did you have a reputation at that point? Yeah, I, I did. I was fortunate, right? You know, I, I worked really hard, got some really good wins. Um, but, you know, for me, the key was reciprocity. Yeah. You know, um, when when you're working in a corporate environment, God, there's so, there are so many players in the game. Right, you just uh, you, you'd lose track, and you'd really lose sight of what it is that you're trying to achieve, if you didn't check in with the right people, and if you didn't build the right relationships with the right people as well. And you know, spending an extra five or ten minutes with someone to see how they're getting on, how their kids are getting on, and genuinely showing some care and and, and affection towards that. I wasn't aware of what the trust equation was at that point, but that intimacy that 
I was able to build with a lot of people ended up really, really helping me um, in just getting really good at my job. Uh, so that's what I focused on was delivering as much value as possible, um, not just for clients, end clients, which was a given, but I've been doing that for years. But actually, I started turning it inwards and saying, well, how can I add value for my colleagues as well? So, you know, I remember a, a, a good buddy of mine moved across from HSBC to Lloyd's a few years after me. And he came and spent a, an afternoon with me up in Milton Keynes. And he was just outraged at some of the processes and the systems. And I just remember saying to him, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to survive being here, you have to just leave that. It's out of your control. There's nothing you can do. And, you know, so, so, so being there for other people was a major part of it. And one of the things that I realized just through asking for feedback, yeah. which is really tough, right? I, I would ask people, where am I good? Where am I bad? How do I make you feel? Where am I a complete ass? Right. Yeah. And under the third one, how do I make you feel? People would say, look, your energy is just infectious. So I, I, you know, I thought about that and I thought, well, let's conserve energy to when you're really going to need it in a day. Because a lot of people talk about time management. They don't talk about energy management. So I would, I would inject that energy wherever I thought it needed to be, to be placed. Um, and I'm really lucky, right? You know, a lot of people responded really well to that and entrusted me. Um, I became a confidant for, for so many people and, and then probably in about 2017, I burnt out completely burnt out. I mean, I was running all over the country. I was juggling too many things, but what it really boiled down to was that I, I had just felt, um, somewhat betrayed through, I suppose through nobody's fault. I, th I think what, what ends up happening in a large corporate organization is there's a message up here and then there's a message in the middle and then how that gets disseminated, um, I suppose it's, it's, it's down to the individuals, but one of the things that I kept asking was why, why, why? And, uh, well, just because, and then when I, when I started asking why, and eventually the boss at the time said, look, I, I don't know. I just don't know. And I said, well, how the, how's that supposed to make me feel yeah. when I'm running around trying to get business in? Um, and when you said why, did you mean it in the overall business direction of the company or those specific tasks you're being asked to do? Or you know, the, the, the overall vision um, and where is this all going was was really my challenge, and I couldn't I couldn't really see that. Didn't like. It. Sorry, I'm going to sound really um, uh, condescending, but I'm, I'll, I'll say it anyway. Um, didn't the website for the bank have like a vision statement on it? Helping Britain prosper. Okay, so that's really vague. Is that the issue? If the vision statement was too vague, or... I think for me personally, <clears throat> I just kind of outgrown it as well. An issue, you know, I'd been going out there winning hundreds of millions of pounds of what, what a bank calls liabilities, right? So one of the things I learned about banking is that it turns a balance sheet on its head. So what you will see as a balance sheet as an asset, cash is an asset, a bank sees cash as a liability because it's a client's cash and they can withdraw it at any time. And an asset is a loan, but to a, a business, uh, uh, a loan is a liability, right? So that, 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 that you know, when, when you understand that, that the that that game is completely different yeah. uh then, then you realize well there's more to this isn't there there's a lot more to it so i got a lot of insight into things and i learned an awful lot about things um that i'd never intended to learn about but i did learn about it anyway and then um 
you know, pressure to do things that I didn't believe in was one of the issues that I had. The although there was a vision statement, and although you are you are part of this great thing helping Britain prosper, which it was, you know, and it still is an amazing aspiration. The challenge for me was that I didn't feel like I was being told the truth around my role and what was going on. Um, and there was a lot of confusion. There was a big power play at the top and there was a lot of confusion around the future of where this business was going. And it was just chaotic, quite frankly. It was chaotic. And for me, I was already thinking, what else am I going to do? Right. And, um, that, that email that I sent out to my nearest and dearest asking for feedback was a precursor for that. And then what I did was before I even knew who Jordan Peterson was, um, and, and one of the exercises that he asks his, his patients, clients to do is write your life story. So I went away, I, I got some dental work done in Turkey, funnily enough. Um, and I sat down over that week and I, um, I read a book called Happy by Darren Brown because I'd always been seeking happiness and I was, I was, um, I was amazed at the simplicity, huge book, but the simplicity of the conclusion, which is to ultimately, um, live a more considered life, but that's another matter. I wrote out my, my version of my life story and I realized the bottom line was I hadn't taken many risks, right? I'd moved banks. I had, you know, increased my income. But within that, there weren't any huge risks, right? We'd acquired some property along the way. There's still not huge risks. And I just wasn't a big risk taker. So um, I made a plan, right, with my wife. And I just said, look, I, I've got to get out of this banking game. I think I can do it by the time I'm 40. At this point, I think I was yeah. mid-30s. Um, but there's some things that we need to solidify first. We need to, as Richard Branson says, protect the downside. And the downside was, well, money. You know, how are you going to forecast? How are you going to pay for the property that you live in? How are you going to fund the gap that's going to be created through some sort of exit? And then um, fast forward a few years, I, I completed a coaching diploma. Um, first time I'd funded anything so substantial myself, but first time I'd sat in a room uh, in 20 odd years that had nothing to do with finance and banking. So I was sat with some HR professionals, completely out of my depth. I had no idea what was going on, but I loved it. I absolutely, I loved it because I just felt like such a novice, such a beginner. How long did the diploma take? Uh, about a year and a quarter. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so it was all pre-COVID. We had all of the class from pre-COVID, and I already knew that this was the path I was going to take. I was like, all right, coaching, consulting, training, something like this has is, is, is got to be the path that I'm going to take. Fantastic group of people, fantastic facilitators. And then I sat down with my boss and I said, look, the company's going this way. I'm going that way. Let's negotiate a deal to get me out. Um, he was fantastic about it. So supportive. And then two, three weeks later, pandemic and lockdown. So we had a very honest conversation. He said, look, I really need you. I said, I totally get it. Clients need, need the bank as well. So I'm here for the clients. And these were clients, you know, I, by this point, so I'd worked for what, 18 years, um, in banking at this point, something like that. And, you know, from startups right through to global corporates. So, you know, your, your biggest brands in the UK are knocking on the door and checking in with me to say, how do we do this? So at this point I, you know, climbed that part of my path, 
um, which there's a lot of pressure on, right, when you're dealing with the bank's biggest clients. Um, but nonetheless, did did what I could, did my part, and then um, eventually, after a few uh, managerial rotations and a couple of managers later, I uh, I was I was given what I was what I asked for, and uh, I left I left the bank in August 2021. So it's only, it's like a year and a half because I, I took the first couple of months just to adapt to, you know, I'd, I've been employed since I was 15, 16. So to have no paycheck, to not be PAYE, to set my own website and set my own limited company and all of those fun things that I dreamt about doing for such a long time and all of a sudden I was doing it. Um, it felt really novel at first. Corporate Spass is a really good name. Did he did he get the domain for that, the .com? And uh, I got the .code at UK. Um, how that came about was uh, for years I'd been touting that phrase around because to me it's really simple, right? You learn book smarts at school. Yeah. And depending on where you work, where you grow up, you learn street smarts. I grew up in northwest London. There were bits of where we lived where you needed street smarts. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately most people we're talking 40 plus percent of the population who are employed will end up working in a corporate in a large corporate right um and where in your life before you start working in that corporate are you ever taught about corporate smarts it's not book smarts it's not street smarts it's corporate smarts and you know the kind of things that i'm talking about is communication stakeholder management i mean what's that to someone who has no idea, right? You go into a high school or a college and you go, who are your stakeholders? They'll be like, I didn't order steak. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're talking about communication, influence, right? Not not just influencing clients, but influencing colleagues. But, you know, I, I guess corporate smarts and business smarts, uh, I think they're slightly different, aren't they? Um, oh, they are. Because, but I, I, actually, I... I I haven't really thought about corporate smarts for a very long time because everything I think about is business related these days. But actually, well, no, they're very similar. In fact, I'd, I'd say because you, you've got the stakeholders in, in business anyway, and you've got stakeholders in. The only thing is looking at your customers in a different ways. So in business, you have customers. In the corporate world, you have internal customers essentially. So the principles of being responsive, of being professional, um, building credibility. I think actually they apply in both situations. Yeah, I, I think that probably the, the difference that you're relating to is ownership and equity, right? And um, and accountability as well. Like that's a key thing that in a lot of corporates just disappears is accountability, Yeah. right? And that, that, was, that was something that I really struggled with was, you know, knocking on the table and saying, who's accountable for this? Yeah. Right, because you, you'll look around and no, no one's holding out and going, I'll take responsibility for this. Yeah. They're just not. And that's one of the scariest things of being a business owner, right? If, if, if you want it to be, or it could be the most exciting thing, which is taking full ownership, right? Having complete autonomy. Yeah. Um, most people want that freedom and they want that autonomy, but you know, actually wanting it and doing it is two different things. Well, with freedom comes great responsibility, I guess. But me, do you like Mark Manson and uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like me, me and Ariel, we've got like a, yeah, we, we always use a saying, something might not be my fault, but it is my responsibility. And we, we do that a lot in the business. But, um, and that's essentially it. When, when you run a business, you are responsible for everything. Like, you know, someone sneezes in the salad, it's your problem. 
um, who are like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I use that example, but um, yeah, I did, yeah, it is, uh, I guess actually you think about the corporate world, I, it's been a long time since I've been in it, but yeah, accountability is so important, definitely. It's huge. And, and you know, one of the things that when I look back, so I did 20 years in banking, um, and when I look back and I think about what, what are corporate smarts? So I used to ban this phrase around with a couple of my friends, one friend in particular who's who's just been fantastic for me um, through the years. He introduced me to Tim Ferriss. He said, I think now's the time for you to read this book. Yeah. I was 20, 2013, I was running around the country like a lunatic um, for, for, for the bank and for clients. And then all of a sudden, you know, you talk, talk about liberation and yeah. delegation and outsourcing your life and all of this sort of thing. I was like, what is this? They really got me thinking in a different way. Um, so, you know, big props to Tim Ferriss for, for, for helping out there in the four hour body. You know, just a slow carb diet, for example. Is that Tim Ferriss as well? Yeah, for our body. body. I, I haven't read that. No. Definitely worth a read. Do you, do you have um, do you have rules that you set yourself now you run your own business? I do. I do. It's a great shout. Um, what are the rules? The guiding principles. Um, I don't generally have meetings before ten thirty because for years I didn't spend breakfast with the family. So wife and daughter. So now. It's a personal point of pride to get up and, you know, prep myself so I'll stretch in the morning and whatever else, but actually cook breakfast for the girls and have something healthy and nutritious and everything else. But then um, it's about me putting on, you know, what my great mentor and associate Steve Rush calls, who's a great author. Um, he's got a book called The Leadership Cake, definitely worth checking out. He calls uh, the metaphorical oxygen mask, which is... If you if you are incapacitated, yeah. you can't help any anybody else. It's like if the oxygen mask is hanging from the plane ceiling, put yours on first. It's got it. Yeah. And the same applies to you being a leader in your business. Now look, it's just it's just me in corporate smarts, but that means I have to lead me. And self leadership is a major part of that. So um, what does that look like? Well, I look after myself. So when I was working in the bank, I used to think I, I trained. I used to think I worked out. I used to think I was like robust and strong and everything else. And then um, when the pandemic hit, everything changed because I wasn't on the road every day. And I was like, well, I've got all this time back. So I was working out at home and all of this sort of stuff. And that, that focus on my own health changed completely because health is wealth. Although time is your only currency, to me... You could have all of the money in the world. You could have all the businesses in the world. You could have all the clients and all of the adulation and awards and stuff. But without your health, it's meaningless. Well, health can give you more time there, can't it? 100%. 100%. And actually, it can give you more energy. So It does give you more energy. Like If you maintain your health, and you've probably found this, right? Working out regularly. Yeah. Although, at first, you're, you're zonked from it. It gives you more energy, right? It gives you more physical energy anyway. You know, um, so... You I guess like I was watching like this uh, little interview with Jeff Bezos and I've heard it from loads of other people anyway, but it's just like, I guess like a lot of people sell time for money, but then a lot of people value their time. So they, they essentially sell a solution for money um, and which isn't necessarily time linked. But I, th I think the currency beyond time is energy. There is that, that is another level of, of currencies. But yeah, because Jeff Bezos, he's like, you know, my only job is to make two or three high quality decisions every single day. And 
But this got me thinking, and uh, I mean, Ariel will laugh about this anyway, but like about two years ago, I got to a point where I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, it, it takes the same amount of energy to make a high quality decision in the business as it does to pick what I'm going to eat or what clothes to wear. So, you know, a lot of the podcasts like watchers will be like, why does he always wear a blue shirt or a blue t-shirt? Or why has he always got the gray, uh, gray trousers on? But actually, you know what? It's Steve Jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, and Mark Zuckerberg do the same thing. Yeah, so um, I, I did. I, I I switched to just the same clothes, not the same clothes, but loads of that are different of the same clothes. And then I I just kind of got got a bit depressed with it. So then I was like, I bought some grey t-shirts, and then I bought some light grey t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> then I bought a grey jumper. And so I'm kind of Dorian, Dorian Gray, the Fifty Shades of Grey is what yeah, them of, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, so I, I went too far one way, and now I'm kind of coming back to centre line. But uh, really, what, what I'm always trying to do is I'm always trying to preserve that energy making, uh, sorry, decision making energy, and it's quite um, that's really important to me. So I try, um, but actually, yeah, it's um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, it well, I think I think energy management is is um, just never looked at. Right, you know, when you consider the different types of energy that that you can draw from, yeah. as well. So you've got physical energy and exercise as part of that. Nutrition, hydration, sleep, rest, and recovery, definitely. But then there's emotional energy, right? So if you surround yourself with mood movers and energy vampires, yes. what's that going to do to you? And then on top of that, if you don't enjoy the work that you do, or you're not grateful for the job that you have and the paycheck that you receive or the business that you run, that drains your energy. So if you love what you do and you can find some gratitude in what you do, that generates more energy, right? So how many times have you, like when you probably sat down to do the apex piece, yeah. but when you came out from that, you were buzzing. You're probably bouncing off the walls, right? And when you talk about it, because it's your baby, your business, you probably find that there's this energy that just comes out of nowhere, but that's because you love what you do. And then the final part is kind of philanthropic energy, which is, you know, something that I found through coaching, through training people, which you get through sharing and helping others. And it feels good to help other people, right? It's it's kind of that simple. And one of the things that um, most people never do is manage your energy. They never think about it. Yeah. They never think, well, I'm Zolt, I'll just have a coffee. That's what most people do. They don't realize that coffee doesn't give you energy. It just prevents your brain from receiving uh, a chemical called adenosine, right? Which makes you sleepy. Um, instead, why don't you just have a 15 minute nap or do some non-sleep deep rest or something like that to actually recharge? Because you need to recover energy. Um, it's not just gonna appear through a can of Red Bull or something, right? For some people it might do. But then the longer term effect on the on your health is yeah. not great, right? I mean, look, I'm not a pillar for health by any means. I still like a beer and a drink and things like that. And um, I'm ashamed to say, it, but it's true. I'll still smoke a cigarette after a few drinks, maybe sometimes, because uh, I used to be a smoker. Nonetheless, um, managing energy is such a, a, a fundamental thing for everybody, but most people don't address it. And that's that's part of how you lead yourself in the best way i think right you know it's in, instead of asking your team when you come in in the morning how you're doing today right ask them how did, how did you sleep last night how you're doing you'll probably get the stock answer because most of what we do 90 percent of what we do is habitual so when someone says how are you doing yeah i'm good 
you know what? That's a cultural thing, isn't it? Because I, I was talking to someone who, um, like, they've, they've got, like, a, a Polish group in their family, and, like, you, you ask a Polish person how they're doing, they'll, they'll be really truthful. Whereas, like, apparently, if you ask an English person how they're doing, then you get the optimistic answer. And, Sometimes. Uh, yeah. Actually, yeah. It's, uh... But you're right, it's cultural, and, and culture is built through habit and repetition. Yes. So, so habitually, what do, we, what do we ask people? The same thing. So, and, and, and it goes back to building intimacy, part of that trust equation, which is asking different questions because you'll get different qualitative and quantitative answers. So how was your sleep last night? Oh, I slept terribly. What, what do you already immediately know about the individual who's just told you I slept terribly instead of them, them saying, yeah, I'm good. So what, uh, then you're trying to figure out why did they sleep terribly? Are they worried about something or immediate? Well, yeah, exactly. What's, what's, what's the challenge for them in terms of sleeping, but what does that mean for their energy today? Yeah. If you've only had five hours sleep and you used to eight, what's that going to do to your energy, right? I mean, you've got young kids, so you know what it would. So I guess if, if my staff are watching this and I ask them, how do you sleep last night? And they'll be like, oh, I only got terribly, only got four hours. And then I give a half their workload for the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You see the cost. I see the opportunity no, you're right, of absolutely, understanding yeah. more about who it is that you're working with. Yeah. And, and, you know, just again, understanding and empathy, I think is such a pivotal part of leadership yeah. and a pivotal part of building relationships at work for sure. So that's another kind of corporate smart is actually what drives people. You know, if you, if, if you see one of your colleagues, one of your team eating McDonald's every day for lunch, yeah. you know, that there's probably something not quite right there. Even if you're 20, you do have that guy. <laughs> so, and, and you know, which is fair enough. If he's enjoying it and he's, he's loving that, that's cool. Um, everyone's going to be unique. Everyone's yeah. going to be different. The real, the real challenge is what different questions do you ask? So, you know, um, at the end of a week, why, what I like to ask people is what's been the highlight of the week? Or what, what's been the biggest learn of this week? Rather than, how was your week? Yeah, it's just a bit vanilla. It's, yeah. Lots of people are probably going to ask, how was your week? Um, what, one other piece around around this, and, and, and this just isn't within the corporate environment, but it's at home as well, is remaining present and asking the people that you live with different questions, right? So, how was your day? Now, I've got a teenage daughter now. She's amazing. But if I ask her how was her day, what do you think she's going to answer me? Good. Oh, good. That that that's it, and I love it to bits. So I'll ask some other. What was the what was the most fun part of your day? What happened, right? And then you know try and create a bit more of a conversation, um, rather than than just the classic good, uh, and then she'll run off upstairs. I, again, it's you know asking different questions. I think. Is, is, is another reason why corporate smarts became, has become what it's become. As a re-educate re leaders to ask better questions. Yeah, and, and colleagues, right? Because I work with a lot of teams. And when you go into a team environment, um, the first thing that most people forget about is how much knowledge is around the table, how much experience is around the table. So, you know, I, I, I quote um, Socrates, the, as, as I call him, the OG of Greek philosophy, right? Um, and when, when he would walk around Athens, people would stop him and say, how is it you're the wisest man uh, in the empire? And he'd say, well, I'm not wise for I know nothing. And what he's getting at is that every single person that you meet, you can learn something from. And when you sit down in a, in a team environment and you share that immediate insight, it's fascinating. 
fascinating to see people look at each other and they kind of recognize, right? Like you could teach me a ton about Apex, about your clients, about all sorts in your life that I've got no idea about. But when that recognition is there, you're like, it's, it's almost like, you know, in Avatar, that movie, they say, I see you. There's almost a bit of that that goes on and it just helps build stronger bonds, right? I worked in only a couple of incredible teams in my cor corporate life and it was all about those bonds. Yeah. And we built those relationships, not around the boardroom, not in the office, but when we were out doing other things, having a good time together, getting to know who each other really were. Those sorts of things are invaluable. And again, I think some some businesses do a great job with that. Others, they're working on it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where Corporate Smarts came from. Um, and what it means to me is so many people in, in, in the kind of corporate world. So most of my clients are big financial services businesses, right? Some FTSE 100s and things like that, which is amazing. Like I never thought I would be where I'm at now and I'm, I feel immensely grateful. There are so many challenges that staff and employees end up with that are completely avoidable, I think. Okay. Right? So, and, and a lot of that is around, you know, um, the cheesy term mindfulness. Yeah. It's just being aware of what's going on. So I'll give an example where I was in a team, me uh, a team meeting and we we're talking about prioritization. There was one young man in there expressing his frustration over whatever the situation was. And I mean, like he was near tears, you know, and um, he's, he's being very vulnerable in front of his whole team, but he's, he, you know, he's relatively inexperienced. And I, you know, I, I held up a mirror for him and turned on a flashlight and said, you know, the re you know, what's the real reason here that, that you feel like this? Oh, it's because this process is rubbish or that system's rubbish or we haven't got enough people. And I said, wait, look past the red mist if you can. And what you'll see is that you're suffering all comes from fear, right? So you're probably a Star Wars fan as well, right? Yes. Fear leads to suffering and hate, and, and all. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. That's it. Yoda's line, right? And I that 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 struck me a good few years ago when I saw a colleague who was visibly suffering, right? Yeah. Lip trembling, just come in from a meeting, um, eyes watering, and this was all completely avoidable. It was, that was just their emotional response to yeah. it, right? understanding the emotional response as part of it and this young man you know um afterwards took me to one side and he goes i think you're right because he, he couldn't see past the red mist of anger yeah. right that stemmed from a fear and the fear and i just asked him and i said look is the fear losing face looking like you you've done a rubbish job losing your conscientiousness your reputation he was like it's all of those things yeah. so all of those things um and that's what happens in in large corporates right you know uh if, you, if you're working in a FTSE 100, yeah. you're in, by default, you're in the top 4% of employees in the UK, yeah. right? Because you're working for the top 100 value businesses in the country and you're one of the employees that works in there. Yeah. So it's only 4% of the UK population works in a FTSE 100. Break it down even further. What a lot of people don't realize is if you're in a sales team, in a business that's in the FTSE 100, and that business is one of four banks, for example, or one of four insurance companies, well, how many sales teams are there, right? So all of a sudden, from top 4% in the country, you're in the top 0.00001 percentile. People forget how valuable they are. People forget what experiences that they've got. 
people forget um, how special they can be. Since leaving the corporate world and meeting lots of different businesses and in, in lots of different and lots of different teams, you realize like you get this incredible life experience through sitting around board tables talking to senior people. Yeah, learning by osmosis as well. Like um, some of the best experience I've ever got in my career was just sitting in a um, in a business where I was surrounded by the financial director, the sales director, the managing director, and just overhearing their conversations. It was, and I, I was quite a junior member of staff back then, but. Actually, one one thing, uh, like what you're saying, touches on what Mark Manson says. Like, I, I guess, say Mark Manson says, you know, if you essentially, you you can uh, control your ha happiness by setting the criteria for your happiness. So, like, um, uh, I, you know, Mark Manson says, okay, well, this guy was really short and he was struggling to get like a girlfriend. And he kept putting it down to the fact that he was short rather than um, understanding all the other things that he had to give. And I, I think it, what I've noticed from the corporate world, actually, like the criteria for your happiness are given to you. And it takes a, a lot to actually say, hey, actually, I'm going to create my own criteria. And maybe that's why people start their own businesses because they want to create their own criteria or maybe they don't understand it at that point, but that's essentially what they're trying to do. Autonomy and control, right? He's trying to grab the control back with of your own life yes so you don't feel like um you're you're a piece on a chessboard i used to say to people uh when when i was being quite pessimistic at work yeah. i used to say to people just remember that the king and the pawn all end up in the same wooden box yes actually yeah that's a good point <laughs> which is true but in the same breath you know like you asked about rules um, you, you have to be disciplined, really disciplined to work for yourself. And, you know, although you have to be disciplined to get up and do a job that perhaps you may not want to do, right? The discipline relates to, I've still got clients that I need to serve, right? I'm still contractually obliged. You are disciplined by default because you're still getting up every day, no matter how you feel, and you're showing up at work at 9am. The, the opposite is true when you work for yourself. Because you can work whenever you want. It doesn't have to be a nine to five, right? It can be a, a ten thirty till seven, or whenever whenever it is that you want to work. Um, the the interesting uh, thing for me is I don't feel nearly as guilty as I used to, right? So if if I if I was exhausted by three o'clock and I still had three four calls left to do, and I was working in for a bank, I would feel incredibly guilty to um, even suggest postponing one of them because I was exhausted, yeah. right? Whereas now, if I have to do that, well, I don't because the rules that you you asked me about, I make sure that I space out my meetings. Yes. I don't have back to back to backs. You know, like the, the, the research is out there, the studies are out there that if you're having back to back meetings, your brain is just being drained. Um, and by the time you've, you know, if you've got four back to back meetings, by the time you've hit your third meeting, you're at half capacity, if yeah. that. But actually having little breaks in between, and you're not talking about long 15 minutes, something like that, which helps you recover a bit more of that energy, right? It just helps freshen the brain cells. And more importantly, write, write down the actions and, um, and actually maybe do something about it as well, right? As opposed to just bouncing from one to another. Um, but that's something, again, that's really common that I come across is a lot of people just feel really guilty about, you know, stepping away from their desk for lunch. Like even though we're in uh, you know this fantastic modern world of being able to work from home, yeah. when I'm with teams, 
or when I'm with a room full of people, because sometimes I do some some motivational speaking, I'll ask them, how many of you, raise your hands if you still eat your lunch at your desk at home? And it's a majority. And I can't understand the reasons. So why? Well, because I don't have time. What, what do you mean you don't have time? You yeah. work from home. Yeah. You've just been gifted. How, how many hours are you spending traveling? You've just been gifted all this time back. Yeah. What are you doing with it? Um, and again, it goes back to roti, right? Return on time invested. How you, you make it work for you. But also building rules in for yourself. Like that's really pivotal, right? Having that structure and discipline around your own life, I think is really, um, it's liberating. Although many people wouldn't think that. When you think of the word stru structure and discipline, you don't think, oh, that's, that's liberating. I'll feel much freer when I do that. Um, but in actuality, it's true, right? You, you'll find that within work when you structure your schedule based on your priorities, you get things done. It's what I call GSD. Yeah. Get stuff done yes, or, yeah. or shit done or whatever you want to call it. Um, that is pivotal, right? Having that control, but that only comes from discipline. And that discipline comes from, you know, habit which again is culture, but habits also form your future you. So what, what you're doing now habitually creates you tomorrow, next week, next year, and so on. If that yeah. makes sense. I mean, your, your history and your, your career is very inspiring, what you've done. Um, what's next for corporate smarts? Where do you want to take it? Global. Um, so... So I'm fortunate that I work with some, some fantastic financial services businesses and other businesses as well. So there are some startups, SMEs that I work with, but then there's your FTSE 100s that I work with as well. And recently I just issued my first USD uh, invoice, which, which is super cool um, and super complicated. So I'm so grateful for amazing, my accountants are amazing as well. They really help me out. Um, but to go global, to provide you know, some web-based learning, yeah. uh, CPD accreditation is, is next, and provide some of these corporates with very simple tools that will help their people um, because there's only so much of my energy that I've got. So I'd love to be able to, you know, put things together that corporates want, collaborate with these large corporates. Why do you, why do you want to go global? Like, there's loads of businesses in the UK. What makes you want to go? Well, it's a big place, Nishi. It is, yeah. I want to see more of it. And if I can do that while serving clients, um, earning money and bring my family with me, because, you know, it, it's great doing it on your own. Yeah. And better when you do it with your loved ones. Absolutely. Yeah. That to me is kind of a dream, right? How do you, how is it that you're able to see the world, earn money, spend time with loved ones all at once? Um, so that was part of the vision was to, was to be international with it. And do you think you would build a team and get them to go out and coach? It's a great shout. Um, I've thought about it. And if I'm at that point, which is kind of coming close where I, I'm up to capacity, then I'll have to bring some people in. But I, I guess you got to do it before you reach capacity because, yeah. Yeah, because, you, you, you know, thankfully, I normally get a heads up, you know, a couple of months before a project is about to kick off. Um, but if that's the case, there are some amazing people that I've worked with in my career who are great at delivering messages, who are yes. great at sharing knowledge um, and imparting their experience as well. Because, you know, we, we buy stories, really, not, not a theory. Theory is great. Knowing the path and walking the path is two different things. I want to understand how you walk that path. Yeah. 
um, and what I can learn from that. You know, that's, that's if, if I end up with people, those are the kind of people that I, I'd, I'd love to have with me. It's, what advice would you give to someone who's starting up in business based on what you've learned so far? Uh, if, if, if I can speak candidly, just fucking do it. Uh, don't, don't, don't be scared. GFD. G, 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 GFD, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, honestly, don't allow the fear to, um, to suppress you, to crush you. Because I, I allowed that to happen to myself for so long. Um, I realized that I would have to become someone different in order to get totally different results. And look, you know, I, I loved my banking career. It was fantastic. Um, but I also felt like there was, there was another path for me to take. Um, and in order to overcome that fear, it took years, right, of planning, but then hard work. And I don't just mean on the business, but I mean on me as well yeah. to, to become someone different. But it also um, was relying on, you know, friends, my wife having my back. I wouldn't be here without her. She, you know, she really does make me a better man. Yeah. But then having friends who have my back, who, who, who wanted me to win, right? Having colleagues and associates who had my back and wanted me to win. And I'll tell you another one. Having colleagues who belittled me and poo-pooed my ideas. I remember someone saying to me on a, on a group call, Oh yeah, how's that? How's that bullshit management consultancy that you're thinking of doing? Oh right. Um, this is a guy in the twilight of his career, and do you know what? I'm, I'm not sure whether he meant to or not, but he fueled a fire in me, right? And I've never spoken to him since because that 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 was the that kind of like turned me in a completely different direction. Um, but it was really really helpful. So you know, any naysayers use them as fuel. Any any ideas that you've got put them down right you you know you, you're better off just starting without a plan than planning and not starting i used to sit down and do the greatest plans in the world and never do anything with it um i used to sit down and go through a spreadsheet of what the earnings potential would be never did anything with it but when corporate smarts came about i didn't do any of that um i gave myself some clear objectives which was reconnect with network right so i would say if you're starting out in your in your business look back into your career into your network find out who you know and just share some gratitude with them first of all for what they've taught you because without a doubt you'll learn something from them and then just see what sort of conversation develops from there uh, be honest with people around you know what it is that you're looking to do know your purpose i think is key as well know your why simon sinek um and know what your vision is right you know have an idea as to where you want it to get to you mentioned 65 right retiring at 65 you know reading the four-hour work week really turned that on its head for me again and made me think well why can't i have these mini retirements as it talks about stuff like that but i think that that is the that is the um story that we're told you've got to work till 65 unfortunately most people have to work longer you know what though i i never want to retire i'm gonna i'm gonna work as long as i could yeah but um i, I just put 65 because i need a number for the calculator uh, I could put 75, I could put 85, but it's just, I think at 65, I want to keep working. I want to keep adding value, but I, I do want to step it back a bit. But but by then you'll, you know, you'll probably be international by then, issue, right? And Apex will yeah, be will yeah. be in, in other territories as well. Could be in the FTSE 100. Yeah. It's, it's been absolutely amazing having you on this podcast, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me in. Yeah, so everyone, you've been listening to Unrelenting Drive. Um, check out all of our other podcasts as well on our website. And um, I'll see you at the next podcast.